0: and welcome to the paperback show this is episode 9 on hard-boiled writer Dan J. Marlowe in paperback with special guest Dwayne Swierzynski fans of hard-boiled fiction will know the author Dan J. Marlowe but many readers and paperback junkies will not Today's show will present a brief biography of this underappreciated author and list some of his most important novels. And in the second half of the show, we'll add mystery and graphic novel author Dwayne Swierzynski to discuss Marlowe's masterpiece, The Name of the Game is Death, a gold medal paperback published in 1962. Dan J. Marlowe at one time was on top of the world as a novelist. In 1971, Operation Flashpoint won the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America, an organization he was actively supporting. At conventions, he was lionized and was the hit of the after-hours party because of his charismatic personality and intelligence. Pretty good for a guy who started out as an accountant and a part-time gambler. Not to mention he was in his 40s at the time, and despite his rather pudgy appearance, he had a way with women. But let's go back and follow Marlowe's life leading up to his accolades and awards. Born Daniel James Marlowe on July tenth, 2014, in Lowell, Massachusetts. His father was a printing press mechanic whose job regularly took him away from home. Daniel lost his mother at the age of five. She died of pneumonia complicated by a worldwide flu epidemic which began two years earlier in 1918. Daniel and his younger brother Don Marlowe were raised by their grandmother and two aunts in Woburn, Massachusetts. Marlowe later wrote about his school years at the St. Charles Parochial School and about his grandmother who apparently had a temper, something Marlowe inherited from her. She had a maxim, she imparted to the young Daniel J. Marlowe. If the game's worth the bloody candle, take your best shot. He also recalled in columns he wrote for a local newspaper in 1967, that he had a boyhood love of books. Quite often I'd hide books outside in the shed for the days when my aunts would boot me out of the house for some air. Dan's father remarried a school teacher and lived in New London, Connecticut. Dan and Don joined their father there and went to high school. And after high school, Don earned degrees in physics and mechanical engineering along with a master's degree in solid mechanics. He went on to become a distinguished scientist. Dan, on the other hand, never went to college. He did, however, receive an accounting certificate from Bentley School of Accounting and Finance in Boston in 1934. Marlowe went on to work as an assistant manager of two country clubs in Connecticut. According to his biographer, Charles Kelly, Marlowe spent most of his time before World War II as a professional gambler. In one of his later newspaper columns, 1967, He referred to the late 1930s and my days of roustabouting around the racetracks of the country. He stated that he had had a hard time after graduation from accounting school and that he spent some seven years doing nothing but gambling. I played cards, rolled dice, and booked the horses, anything to make a buck during those lean years. Now these experiences formed the basis of many of his later crime novels. Marlow wasn't drafted into the military during World War II, so he worked as a timekeeper at the United Aircraft Corps in Stratford, Connecticut. He ended up leaving this job after an argument with the night supervisor, probably another example of his temper problems. Daniel suffered from migraines throughout his life, something that his biographer thinks might have kept him out of the military. 1945. Daniel J. Marlowe is 31 years old and working for a wholesale tobacco firm as the office and credit manager. He ran a 14-person office along with keeping the books. This year was also significant because he met and married Evelyn Chimura, a 24-year-old secretary. He was passionately in love with Chimura, who was described as a big woman, a beautiful broad by his brother's wife. It's possible she was the model for the character Hazel Andrews, the girlfriend of Marlowe's bank robber character Earl Drake, in his classic novel The Name of the Game is Death. Dan always had a story to tell when he stopped by to see us, Don's wife Mary recalled. He was very into life. He liked people. The early 1950s was a very busy time for Daniel J. Marlowe. He supplemented his tobacco job by running an insurance agency in the evenings and on weekends. Apparently, he was also considering a new career as a writer. Mary said, I remember him telling me he wanted to get to the point where he could write and make a living. The late 40s and early 50s were the beginning of the paperback revolution with Gold Medal, a paperback original publisher Marla wrote many of his novels for, starting to publish in 1950. We can imagine that Dan was reading paperbacks and perhaps getting expired to write. Tragically, Daniel's wife Evelyn died suddenly in 1956, and he was beside himself with grief. Charles Kelly quotes an article Marlowe later wrote for Writer's Digest in 1960 on the aftermath of his wife's passing. When I had recovered a little from the first shock, I wasn't long in discovering that my new status had made pretty meaningless everything I had been attempting to do. I told my employer I'd stay with him until he had a satisfactory replacement, and then I'd move on. I didn't know where I was going to work or live, I just knew it wasn't going to be in the same neighborhood. Marlowe says he'd recovered from the first shock. But biographer Charles Kelly suggests that he was unmoored from life. He wanted nothing to do with the house he had lived in with his wife or their possessions. He left it all for his relatives to take care of. And he started to drink. In fact, Marlowe was devastated and spent nearly seven months of his life on the road working at any job he can find, perhaps gathering stories and characters for his later crime novels? We don't know. His biographer writes, He was staying up late at night in motel rooms, reading paperback thrillers with a glass of Seven Crown Whiskey and Seven Up Close to Hand, thinking that he could write at least as well as this, or better. All it took, he believed, was determination and industry, and he had both of those. Daniel J. Marlowe eventually moved to New York City, where he took in plays and musicals. He took a job as a credit manager as a jewelry importer, but he was keen on writing his first crime novel. He took an evening class at NYU, New York University, on novel writing, since he had no idea where to begin. His reading became analytical, and he spent a good deal of time breaking down the novels he was reading. Charles Kelly writes, He, Marlowe, realized he wanted to write a 60,000-word suspense novel, which he broke down as 210 typewritten pages with 14 15-page chapters. Each of these chapters broke down into three five-page scenes. It's important to note, right from the beginning... Marlowe wanted to write sellable fictions. His focus was on making money with his writing. Now, that doesn't make his work any less interesting than the literary writers of his time, but it does help us understand his style and subjects, primarily commercial. Through his writing workshop, Daniel met James Reach, an agent for Samuel French Incorporated. Mr. Reach read Marlowe's first efforts at a novel and redlined the manuscript extensively. Despite his heavy editing, Reach told Marlowe, It's only because of what's left that I've taken the trouble to do this, edit his manuscript. I'm betting you're one of those rare birds, a natural storyteller. Excited by the editor's criticism, Marlowe rewrote the novel extensively and met with approval from James Reach. Reach even suggested that the main character be part of a series of novels. Marlowe was elated and began his second novel that afternoon. Don Preston, an editor at Gold Medal, turned down the first novel initially, titled Doorway to Death. But after the rewrite, he bought both books for his current employer, Avon Books, in 1958. This was two years after Don Marlowe's wife's death. Not only had Marlowe recovered from her shocking death, which propelled him into a midlife crisis—he was 44 when he sold his first two novels— but he had succeeded in becoming a professional writer. Over the next two years, Avon published three more of Daniel J. Marlowe's novels, which featured his series character Johnny Killane. The novels were well-received, but carry many of the hard-boiled genre tropes and clichés. His lead character, not quite a detective but playing the role of one in the series, had a massive physique, was aggressive, reckless, and a survivor, according to Joseph Hoffman, who wrote a book about Marlowe in 1993. The novels are fast-moving and provide plenty of sex and fistfights. In a sense, the Killane series, there would be five novels in the series, were his journeyman works where Marlowe learned the discipline of professional writing. It was to help him immensely when he left Avon to write for gold medal— and produce his masterpiece, The Name of the Game is Death, in 1962. We'll be covering this great crime novel in more depth when we bring in author Dwayne Swierzynski in the second half of our show. The Gold Medal Years Starting with The Name of the Game is Death, Daniel J. Marlowe would write 20 original novels for gold medal. That's 15 years with the same publisher, and considering the high turnover of authors in paperback publishing, that's an amazing accomplishment. His style changed with the name of the game, His Death. It became more streamlined, more realistic, and believable. He was never a great plotter, but his characters and the situation Marlowe put them in often remain in the reader's mind well after the book is over. By switching from a main character who is a crime fighter To a character who was a crime maker, Marlowe's natural talent came out, and none so brilliantly as in The Name of the Game is Death. This novel, which actually didn't sell well in its initial release in 1962, provided the link to a friend and collaborator who would be there for the rest of his life. Al Nussbaum read Name of the Game while in prison on bank robbery charges and wrote to Marlowe. Marlowe responded, and they began a correspondence. Marlowe helped Nussbaum with his desire to become a writer and actively worked towards Nussbaum's parole, which happened in 1976. By this time, Marlowe had moved out of New York City —he never really liked the city much— and found a home in a city very much like the one he grew up in, Harbor Beach, Michigan. He wrote most of his best gold medal novels there, Since he didn't make a lot of money writing paperback originals, the advance was usually under $2,000, he supplemented his income by writing reviews for the Detroit Free Press, short stories for magazines like the Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, and articles in the local paper. He was also very active as a Rotary member and city council member in Harbor Beach. During this period, he spent a lot of time trying to write the novel that would become his breakthrough novel and make him a best-selling writer in hardback. But he just never could get them published. His biographer, Charles Kelly, recounts in detail some of the novels he tried to sell. They sound fascinating, but at heart, Marlowe was a paperback novelist. Living in Harbor Beach He made many friends who would later help him when he faced his second major life crisis. That crisis came in 1977 when, after scouting Florida swamp locations for a novel, Marlowe began to have severe headaches and eventually suffered a breakdown which resulted in amnesia. No consensus emerged on the source of this amnesia, but family members believe it was a result of a stroke. Regardless of its cause, Daniel J. Marlowe's life was completely changed, so much so that his personality became more withdrawn. He couldn't even recognize his own writing when he was given one of his novels to read. Marlowe did his best to rebuild his life and memory, which slowly started to come back to him over several years, but never entirely. Eventually, he moved to Los Angeles to live with Nussbaum, who was making a career for himself as a writer. It was Nussbaum who introduced him to the educational publisher, Beaumar. Marlowe began to write short, easy-reading novellas with sports and mystery themes, which he found enjoyable and profitable. He made 400 to $600 a book. A quick side note, in addition to Al Nussbaum as a collaborator, when Gold Medal decided to turn the Drake character from One Endless Hour and Name of the Game is Death, into a government operative. Spy adventure novels were very popular in the mid-60s due to the success of Matt Helm and John Le Carré novels, and, of course, the politics of the period. He collaborated with a retired Air Force Colonel, William C. O'Dell, a decorated soldier and budding writer. Their work together on the Operation series of novels saw Marlowe sketching out a plot with O'Dell And then O'Dell would write several rough action set pieces in the story. And then Marlowe would do the rewrite and blend everything together. Although O'Dell's name only appeared on the 1967 novel The Raven is a Blood-Red Bird. (laughs) What a great title. It was decided that the rest of the novels they'd co-write would only have Marlowe's name on the cover since he had an established reputation. And O'Dell did not. Fast forward to nineteen eighty. Marlowe won a competition against new and pro authors who were asked to write entries in the Phoenix Force series of men adventure books published by Gold Eagle, part of the immensely successful Mac Boland series written by Don Pendleton. This led to the publication of Daniel J. Marlowe's last novel, Guerrilla Games, in June 1982 as the second in the Phoenix Force series. His work on the Phoenix Force series was slow going, as Marlowe had suffered a stroke along with arthritis in his arms. He did manage to complete the novel and earned $4,200 for it. William O'Dell recalled his fiction partner Marlowe, He lived all by himself and all he ever did was write. He had no activities besides that. He was quite a loner. He had some relatives, but he wasn't very close to them. Writing was just about the only thing he ever did. In August of 1986, Marlowe failed to answer his phone, so his friends called the police, who found him dead in his chair with a book near him. A final heart attack killed him while he was reading. Daniel J. Marlowe was 72 years old, and he was buried next to his wife in St. Michael Cemetery in Stratford, Connecticut. Dan Marlowe's Legacy After Marlowe's death, his books faded into the background. One reason was that although several of his novels were optioned, none were ever made into movies. Also, none of his books ever appeared in America as hardbacks. His name got confused with another mystery writer, Stephen Marlowe. Now, Black Lizard reprinted a number of his novels in the 1980s, and that's where I first discovered him but he remained known mostly to paperback collectors and readers. More recently, there's been a renewed interest in Dan Marlowe. Stephen King dedicated his hard-case crime novel The Colorado Kid to Marlowe, and Starkhouse is reprinting many of his works. At present, his original paperbacks are somewhat pricey, although ironically, you can get ebooks of all of them, well, most all of them, for as low as $2.99. That's probably your best bet for reading him starting out. I'd recommend trying the ebook, and then if you really like him, which I think you will, look for the paperback originals. And finally, in 2012, Charles Kelly's Gunshots in Another Room, The Forgotten Life of Dan J. Marlowe, was published to acclaim. That book went a long way towards reviving the novels of Dan Marlowe for a new generation of readers. Welcome to the second half of our paperback show podcast on Daniel J. Marlowe. I'd like to introduce our special guest, professional writer Dwayne Swierzynski. Dwayne Straczynski is a two-time Edgar-nominated author of 10 novels, including Revolver, Canary, and the Seamus Award-winning Charlie Hardy series. Dwayne has written various best-selling comics for Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Archie, and Valiant, and others including Cable, Deadpool, The Immortal, Iron Fist, yay, Godzilla, which I read and love, and Bloodshot, as well as his creator-owned Breakneck. His most recent work is The Guilty, an audible original co-written with James Patterson and starring John Lithgow and Bryce Dallas Howard. A native Philadelphian, Dwayne lives in Los Angeles with his family. Welcome to the show, Dwayne. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and ideas about Dan Marlowe.
1: Great to be here and thanks for inviting me, Ricky. Anytime oh, yeah. to discuss pulp paperbacks, I'm, I'm game for it. So Yeah. yeah.
0: You were the first person I thought of when I wanted to do a show on Dan Marlowe. So, so thanks for letting me realize my dream.
1: Um, I'm very flattered. Are you kidding me? I mean, my dream, if you told me 22 years ago, I'd be on a podcast, which didn't exist then. But anyway, if you told me I'd be on talking to you about you know, Dan Marlow, I'd be like, why? Well, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, so this is both of our dreams come true, I suppose. <laughs> that's great.
0: Well, my first question to you is, uh, where did you first hear about Dan Marlowe or read one of his books? And what were your impressions?
1: That's funny. I, I traced this back, and I, I realized that my my first dealer was a mystery writer and bookstore owner named Art Borgo. He owned a, a shop in Philadelphia called Who Done It. And this is the mid '90s. I was like a 23 year old fact checker at the local magazine. I had no money, so my entertainment was wandering this bookstore and looking just for cheap, uh, you know, mystery crime paperbacks to read. And Art saw me. And kind of saw, I think, a young a young apprentice. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he, kind of, he kind of took me under his wing and said, Oh, you probably like this. You're a young guy. You want to read about bad blondes in the afternoon. Here, read this. And it was Kane, it was like Goodest, it was Chandler. And he also had this great stash of the original Black Lizard paperbacks, you know, these oh yeah. You know, the kind of the editions that we all knew and love before they were trade paperbacks. And he would just sell them to me either at you know cover cost or cheaper, even he would just give these things to me. And I among those things were you know, the Dan Marlowe books. And I, I didn't read them for a few years. I kind of was going through other things first. And it was reading, I, another book I bought a few years later was The Big Book of Noir, uh, edited by, you know, Ed Gorman, Lee Serbert, uh, Martin Greenberg. And in that is an essay where um, Ed Gorman talks about the gold medal writers and how, you know, how he ranks them basically the first tier and Dan Marlowe was on that list. So I thought I'd better read, you know, this guy. In fact, I remember this quote, um, I wrote this down because I, I love this quote from Ed Gorman. He always thought of Dan Marlowe as an uncle of mine, always in a working class shirt with camels in the pocket, tavern whiskey on his breath and a weary knowing gleam in his eyes. He's a nice cold treat, which, you know, Ed nailed it, you know? So I, yeah, I remember I read it, I guess it was maybe summer of 2000 finally read name of the game is death and it's follow-up and boy, that really, to me, I mean, um, just blew my mind off and my mind out you know it was just incredible just the, the the hard-boiled language everything it moved like nothing else moved so that was you know that kind of really and, and actually it was a huge huge influence on my own work I was still trying to be a novel huh, huh. you know and at the time I had written a cross-genre novel um you know we'll discuss that later but I just so that my discovery was though, know, thanks to Art Orgo, Ed Gorman and then I finally read it and was hooked and anything I saw with Marlowe's name on it I was you know buying basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, your experience is almost the same as mine.
1: Really,
0: uh, I discovered Marlowe in the Black Lizard editions, and I went out and got the Big Book of Noir and read that very same thing. And went, Jesus yeah. Christ! <laughs> um, there was also another one that Bill Kreider wrote about. Oh um, yeah, listing some of
1: the uh, gold medal authors. That's right. And, he list as well, right? Yeah,
0: and and he he had some really important phrase he I, i'm paraphrasing him but basically he said something to the effect that he was a really excellent writer but every so often he'd have this streak of brilliance yeah where he'd oh, just yeah. run off and you, you couldn't believe you were reading such good writing you know what i mean absolutely and i thought my god so i picked up name of the game of death as, and death is and it's set the opening scene is set in phoenix which is i grew up in glendale arizona oh i didn't so know that okay all oh of those streets i knew exactly where he was
1: wow when I he see. was
0: talking about
1: i love that so much i love when you know writers do take that and kind of have those real streets you know and then the idea that you i, I love like kind of seeing those intersections any la novel i read of course i'm looking for the real streets here and back yeah. in philly goodis goodis david goodis also his streets are so real and so you tell him, he walked those streets he knows yeah. those alleys so yeah well he
0: talks about it at the beginning of the book and i i read the revised edition of okay it. yeah uh in 72 the original was in 1962 with gold medal correct uh but anyway the uh in the opening he talks about the blaze off the the bank's white stone (sighs) front and that's absolutely true that whole area in downtown on central have these big uh banks that have these sort of uh uh, marble slate front covers wow and this when this in the summers or when it's bright the The light is just so bright that it's really it's hard to take. You have to turn away from it, you know. Amazing, yeah. And That's I so mean, funny. so immediately, you know, I think one of the tricks, I think you'll agree with me, one of the the things that a, a good author does is that he brings the reader into the world of the story immediately. So there's no question of whether you believe it or you don't believe it. You're you're immediately engrossed in the story, yeah. and by the second paragraph, I was a hundred percent there.
1: You know, totally. I, mean, I totally agree. I mean, I learned a huge lesson from Marlowe, in that in my own work, I always try to ground it with these physical details that either feel so real and unmistakable, or there's also a bit of pain. There's a lot of pain in those first two paragraphs. I mean, it's like there's three yeah. of white there's the gloves, there's the bank stone, there's the kid's face like chalk. It's just like it's a harsh. And you don't, it's not, you're not aware of it, but it, it's, it's a, it creeps on your, into your brain, you know, as you read like, wow, this is a real place. This hurts. Ooh, I'm, 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 I'm feeling tense, you know, reading this thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And, and yet he, well, he was describing simple actions yeah. for the most part, you know, and it, it's interesting. I, I got into this Marlowe project after just finishing a long project with Dashiell Hammett. Oh. And one yeah. of the things that Dashiell Hammett did to, to, and he's really the 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 founder of the hard-boiled school. Although John Carroll Daly preceded him in publishing, sure. Hammett was the guy who refined it. And one of the things that he did, which was very surprising to me, that, that I'm I'm surprised I didn't I didn't realize this, is that he doesn't describe emotions of the characters. Mm-hmm. He just describes action and dialogue. Yeah, which creates a certain amount of ambiguity in the reader. Because you don't, he doesn't tell you. And so I hated this fellow, or I, yeah. you know, he, he, you, you can only go on what they do or say.
1: Yeah. I admire that so much. I mean, I know that, I mean, you read you know, Maltese Falcon, it's all, it's, it's, it's basically, it's what you see the effects of emotion on a character, but never what they're thinking. And I know years later, Donald Westlake did his novel, uh, it's a 361. Same thing. He kind of right. goal was to peel away all that introspection and mental stuff. And just show it to you. Which yeah. Is
0: now, Marlo uh, doesn't follow that um, right. uh, that style completely, but he's in that mode where sure. he's essentially, oh, yeah. he's trying to describe action and then dialogue. He, he stays away from the sort yeah. of inner lives of any of the characters.
1: You know, to it, me, that that's kind of the great definition of like, you know, of the hard boiled school. I mean, it's not just like being tough, taking a bullet, taking a punch. It's how you kind of, Express it in the book, right? You're not usually introspective saying, you know, I feel like if this were written today by a modern author, we'd be a lot, a lot of chapters and chapters. Of, chapter one would be like half the book, right? Where it's sort of, you know, <laughs> how I felt about it, the, the stress, my like, worry. No, it's all just cut to the core. It, it's like a barroom story told by a really tough guy, right? Kind of almost like he's, and I, I love like even the chapter one, I flagged this, my reread it, and like this jumped out at me he's describing he's injured this guy is badly injured he's like recovering from a gunshot wound and uh, the line is like when the thing wasn't throbbing it was itching i let it throb and i let it itch it, that's that's <laughs> hard boiled right there right you yeah know? imagine like you know the jesus and the cross oh they hammer the left hand in up oh, now it's the right god damn. <laughs> the feet are next. You know, it's like that kind of a gruff detached style that I think we kind of admire that, you know, that barroom, you know, banter of like, yeah, my grandfather would tell me tales of like how he'd try to hitch your ride in a trolley in Philadelphia and fall and like cut up in a gash in his side and like, oh, I'm cringing. And he's like, yeah, I went home. I put some tape on it. My mom didn't know. I'm like, who are these people and how tough are they? You know? Yeah, <laughs> so- yeah.
0: I guess what I'm saying is that the Dan style was, much different than other many of the other author styles. Even though he studied authors of the time sure. to get how they how they laid everything out, his was a very individual style and very different from his earlier books, yes. which was the um, Johnny Killane series that he did. That's right. In my early biography, I talked about the early Avon stuff. One of the books that I read was "Shake a Crooked Town," which yep. I love. The cover of this as well. Yeah, beautiful. Um. Here's here's a little bit of the blurb on the back of the Killeen. He realized that he had to have Marlowe after he his wife died and he went through a midlife crisis, which is often uh, happens when there's a a shock like that. And he went to New York and he joined a novel writing workshop and he was always a big reader. And so he started reading his books the paperbacks a little more critically trying to figure out what their form was, how right. they were laid, how many chapters, how many, how long should it be? How many words? How's the structure of it? Yeah. And one of the things he realizes that he had to have a series character. And so he created this Johnny Killeen in many ways. I think it's sort of his apprenticeship as yeah. a writer, because he was learning how to write novels. And it was very different because many, many novelists, um, Will not start out writing novels. They'll do short stories as a way to build up to a novel. That, that's Hopefully. how I, that's what happened with Hammett. Hammett, yeah. was, Hammett was writing dozens of short stories until his editor, um, finally said, you know, why don't you just start writing longer short stories and then we'll work out a novel?
1: Yeah, that's and right. He was
0: building up to it, but Marlowe didn't do that. He jumped. Right into the deep end, and he did the Colleen series, and here's his uh, the the blurb on the back of this uh, book about Colleen, and I think it describes the style and the uh, uh, quality of the books as well. Here's Colleen, smooth as a rip saw, rip, sh- rip saw, and gentle as a jackhammer, the happiest avalanche you'll ever meet who spends his quiet moments riding herd on hoods and hop heads, the hard guys and the devilish dolls of New York's nightside, just a knife's throw from Times Square. <laughs> Trouble's no stranger to Killeen, when an out-of-town mob started making corpses in Johnny's room, he began to get annoyed." <laughs> it's
1: it's that- so poetry, it's like poetry, right? You, I know. Back you know, blurbs are like, wow, I mean, it's just so evocative.
0: Yeah. What- a knife's throw
1: from Times Square, <laughs> I love that. It's like-
0: it's got that sort of tongue-in-cheek, almost parody-like quality to it, totally. which which is very much like the the book itself and yeah. the series itself. Now, that's a little bit that's a little bit silly. It's a little bit uh, hyperbolic. Sure, the books are better than that, but yeah, that's really the quality of them. So when a uh, uh, name of the game is death came in. One of the things he did he switched his marlo switched his point of view from the uh, uh detective right mode to, to catching criminals to being a criminal <laughs> right. from the point so of much. view of being a criminal right you know what i mean
1: absolutely and Yeah. oh yeah
0: it was it was such a leap and quality the quality of his writing the the the, the simplicity of it yeah. was so far away from the johnny collane series he, he yeah. just had a huge leap in that
1: absolutely i, mean, I think that's the that definition of like what makes a a mystery novel a mystery novel to me is always you're trying to you know tame the chaos solve a crime crime novel it's like yeah you're there with the criminal it's great <laughs> so you're having you're trying to cause chaos or trying to you know that to me is you know the, f- the fun of it uh, and i think people yes. get into that that, that it, mode
0: it's almost as if Somehow, that way of looking at the world in his novels created a chord in him as a writer. Yeah. Because the sure. difference between name of the game is death and any of the books that came before yeah. is just pronounced. It's pronounced.
1: That's so true.
0: And speaking of the name of uh, uh, of the game is death, I'd like to um, give you a brief uh, plot synopsis. And yeah. then ask you what you think of that just for uh, listeners who don't know anything about it sure. briefly it's the story of a of a busted bank robbery in phoenix arizona the lead character you know we never learn his true name but he calls himself earl drake actually he doesn't in the first novel but right. in the revised edition they call him earl drake so for the sake of simplicity i'll just say earl drake right. Wounded in the robbery he sends his accomplice to Florida with the money stolen from the bank with instructions to send some of the money to him via mail until the the police pressure from the robbery dies down. Suddenly the money stops coming and uh, uh, Drake drives to Florida to find his friend and the money. During the driving period Drake remembers pieces of his life growing up as a young man. He recalls the events that led him to turn to a life of crime. The rest of the story takes place in a small town in florida where drake's friend was staying drake gets uh, close to the local female bar owner during his inquiries and takes on a stray dog a relationship that, uh, that would last to the sequel one endless hour eventually drake finds his friend who is dead he was tortured to death by a local cop he enacts revenge but in escaping with the money he, well, I'm not going to spoil the anyway. Hey. It's certainly remarkable and it stays with you long after the novel is over. Sure so does. Dwayne, is that a fair summary of the plot of the name of the game? Do you have anything you want to add?
1: Honestly, it's dead on. I, I looked up, I, I've summarized it myself twice in brief. I used to have a blog and I used to, you know, sing Marlowe's praises. And I call these books, the first two books, The Godfather 1 and 2 of crime <laughs> fiction. It kind of feels to me like, I remember reading back to back both and I thought, one last hour is just as good. I know uh, oh, it is. History, but doing just as good as the first one, and then after that, it's honestly Godfather three. No offense, Mr. Coppola. I just it's like not the quality drops off. It's Earl Drake, not quite. Yeah. But the first two books I mean there was a one-two punch, and they're what seven years apart, which is yeah. amazed me. Uh, they can recapture that magic, yeah, and especially when you read the end of the name of the game is death. We won't ruin it, obviously, but it's like, whoa, what's going to happen? I know.
0: Happen? And I it's know. Like, oh, this
1: is what happens next. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> It's um,
0: it's hard, especially with that length of time, seven years, to yeah. get back into that mood yeah. um, and then to to figure out a, a a reasonable and believable, because one of the great qualities of the book is how believable it is. Oh, yeah. So you can't come up with something fanta- something strange or weird, and his solution is perfect. It yeah. fits perfectly with him,
1: you know. It really is. I mean, it almost can be seen as, I mean, I always kind of <laughs> the idea that, you know, it's a bad guy. And the first book is him going to hell, a.k.a. Florida. And then, <laughs> and yeah, then yeah, yeah. book two is like the afterlife, a weird afterlife he has, you know. And it, that was definitely a huge inspiration on uh, for, influence for me on my bank robbery novel, The Wheelman, because it was again a bank robbery, a bank robber going to hell quite literally and kind of what it looks like, and kind of how it feels like. And in The Wheelman, I, on the very first page or so, there's a line that I have, the strong late March sunshine blazed off the bank's white stone so fiercely it hurt the eyes. Which of course is a direct nod to his uh, the the sun shine off the the white stone. Although in real life, I mean, I I the book in my novel the bank in my novel is based on a real bank at Seventeenth and Market. Uh, Same thing. It was a big white building that you know on a bright sunny day. It is like, uh, turn it down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Oh, I wanted to ask you why do you think Name of the Game is considered Marlowe's masterpiece? I mean, the open that opening chapter is still one of the my favorites of any mystery novel I've ever read.
1: Three hundred percent. You know, I, I mean, I think those discover it, love it, you know, and, and kind of, I think it's the use of language. I really think, you know, the voice, I think for me, it's the voice always. Mm. I mean, if you were to rewrite this in a very generic, even say the third person generic prose of a bank robbery gone wrong, it's nowhere near as engaging, I think. It'd be really hard to pull off without that kind of, you know, his, it's a road trip book. It's a very terse, you know, detached guy telling you his life story in his own detached way. That to me is just—it's—it's it's kind of wonderful. It's uh, how it draws so much on a very simple plot, you know. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I—I um, I was thinking, you know, one of the challenges of having a a criminal at the center of your as your protagonist is that trying to make him I mean, I'm not going to use that terrible cliche likable because (laughs) there's nothing likable about him. Right. But it's a difficult thing to get you to empathize with the character, to go along with the story, because I mean, in that first chapter, he there are two bank guards that get brutally murdered. Oh, yeah. There's a doctor that he ends up, I think, knifing to death. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, and then goes on the journey and then the um marlo does a very interesting thing he does a flashback to when he was a young kid that's right now when i re- i remember reading that for the very first time and and thinking well this is kind of awkward mm-hmm. i want to stay with the forward momentum of 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 drake driving and what he's going to come up with but then as i started thinking i think what a perfect time yeah because as you're driving there's this Oftentimes, when you're driving, you begin remembering things or thinking about the past.
1: Absolutely. Perfect time for introspection. Yeah. yeah. It's a perfect yeah.
0: time. And he, you follow his journey into becoming somebody who lacks empathy, becoming a sociopath.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, I mean, yeah. It's almost like, to me, it's up there with uh, Killer Inside Me by Jim Thompson. It even recalls to mind Edward Bunker's memoir about, you know, just all the life keeps punching at you you're going to get hard. <laughs> you're going to like toughen up and yeah. act the world in a certain way. Um, th- those three are classics. Just it really that kind of drags you into their, their brain. And while we don't empathize, like there's certain things that go too far. Like, you know, I'm not a fan of rape and novels. That's not a great thing. Yes. Um, you know, but but to a certain point, though, bank robbers and maybe even con artists are kind of the most reader friendly uh, criminals out there because who doesn't let the rob a bank? You know, if, if you do it without killing somebody, the bank suffers not the innocent people at the counter yeah. you know and a con artist you know preys usually on people who are vain or have you know way too much money and deserve to be fleeced of it so it's, right right i don't know I, I kind of think of all two you know of all the criminal professions out there i don't know i think people secretly want to be bank robbers if they could pull it off um i know i thought about it not seriously but i've, <laughs> I've given it some thought like what your
0: fantasy about yeah
1: you know, like yeah i wrote a, a book a nonfiction book about the history of bank robbery it's a sort of yes, I kind of see like freelance writing as a very you know illegal version of bank robbery you're pulling off these heists you sell a project you sell a story and you live off the that for a while and oh, type for <laughs> a, a new heist you know that's yeah. kind of what it is it's,
0: see, it's- they're they're almost like anti-heroes in a way yeah, the sort sure. of popular version of the anti-hero like in um, Camus' the stranger yes you know where he starts a mom died today oh yeah i guess so you know yeah. you, you how can you how can you follow the adventures of somebody like that well you can because there's sort of wish fulfillment
1: absolutely involved
0: in it you know what i mean
1: yeah i I'd mean, uh, go ahead no I'm, I'm sorry no it's just like you also like people who are really good at their job you get the idea that you know earl drake was is really good at his job and when he has a, a raw hand dealt well he's still good at his job and let's watch him you know <laughs> let's watch him get back into it and right. solve the problem
0: I thought I'd read you the blurb on the back of the 72 uh, name of the geth because it describes the penultimate, uh, because we're in the section where Marlo, uh, where Drake is driving to Florida to find out what happened to his money and his his friend. Right. And he's uh, 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 thinking back to when he grew up as a kid. And the penultimate event occurred that caused him to make the choice. to to live a life of crime and to become a sociopath. I just thought it was really good. On the day they sentenced Ollie Barnes to 15 years, I quit the human race. I never went back to my job and I've never done a legitimate day's work since. I bought a gun in a hawk shop and was surprised to learn how easy it was to knock off gas stations. The money piled up and I bought a secondhand car and drove the 180 miles back across the state, back to Winnick the guy who railroaded Ollie Barnes. I rang his doorbell one night and I shot him in the face four times. He went backwards in a kind of shambling trot. That's for Ollie. I told him, but he didn't, he didn't hear me. He was dead before he hit the floor. Winnick was the first. He wasn't the last. (laughs) And those last two lines are in single sentences. Yeah. So they have that kind of boom, boom. So great. Kind of emphasize. Isn't that great?
1: That's uh, fantastic. Yeah. So, it's like it's being weary of the straight life. The straight life isn't it's for chumps. It's for suckers. I'm going to do my own thing. That's, you know, that's the ethos of that, you know, the, the solitary criminal. But
0: also a sense of injustice. Oh, a yeah, sense yeah. of cruelty being done to him. And yeah. by God, if that's the way the rules of the game are going to be, I'll play it. And I'll do it better than you could ever hope to do it. It's
1: so true. You know and what I mean? Will, I will, name of the game is death. It's a game. He sees it as a you know as a poker game or something or some kind of game to be won and gamed. And if the system doesn't play fair, guess what? Uh, I'll play my own by my own rules and yeah. show you how it's done, which is kind of great.
0: Yeah. You know, there as we mentioned, there are two versions of the name of the game of death. The original in nineteen sixty-two, the gold medal, which has a fantastic cover of the yes. that scene and the uh, payphone booth. Yeah, um, it's just beautiful. All the dark around it, and then the, this guy in a sort of badly fitting suit firing a gun to uh, killing somebody in the. Yeah. The uh, post office box, that's a great scene, by the way, in the novel.
1: Awesome. And
0: then the revised edition in 72, where Marlowe rewrote the novel to uh, to make it part of a series that Gold Medal set up called the Operation Series. Right. Um, <laughs> Do you think there's a significant difference between the two? Do you, have you read the revised edition or? or? You know, what's funny is
1: I don't think I have because I've always, early on, I learned that you should look for the original version. I'm pretty sure what appears in the Black Lizard edition is the original version. I'm pretty sure. I think it Uh, is. Yeah. Yeah. So I never, I have read the later Earl Drake books and kind of had that series, but yeah, I never went back and reread the slightly revised version. So I'm not sure if there are huge differences or not. Well, Charles Kelly
0: and his excellent biography. Right, right of uh dan marlowe talks about some of the differences and they seem to be somewhat small like adjustments of certain uh, lines they they firmed up the name of drake i right. think in the original novel he was chet
1: right chet uh, arnold
0: <laughs> right chet arnold uh n- <laughs> nondescript thing yeah and um so but i don't think there's a significant difference in terms of the the main movement of the plot, the characters, the situations, just minor little adjustments.
1: Yeah. I always thought this is a minor, minor trivia thing, but Chet Arnold is described as a tree surgeon, which reminded me of uh, James Cain's and Mildred Pierce. Mildred Pierce's husband's a tree surgeon. So I was like, oh, is that is that an Marlo, a Marlowe nod or is that just coincidence? I don't know. I, I think bet you it's much- a nod. I think it's yeah. a nod. I think so, right? I mean, that's a but, weird profession. To-
0: because he had to have read Cain and Hammett. Yeah, Those are the so. major novelists of the time and borrowed yeah. Uh, from them quite a bit. See, I wanted I wanted to ask you, Duane, why do you think uh, Marlowe hasn't received the recognition he deserves as a hard-boiled novelist? Gosh, do you yeah. think Do you yeah. think younger readers might find him dated, especially his depictions of women in in the books?
1: Yeah, I wonder if they bump up against that. It's obvious. It's it's a it's a marvel of its time. This is the early '60s, so you know if, if things in Mad Men offended you, you'll be offended here too, probably even worse. But um, I don't know. It's funny. I, I, I wonder about that because his name, his name sounds like a pulp character, Dan Marlowe, you know, is that a real yeah, guy or is that a yeah. real, you know, what is that? Uh, there's Stephen Marlowe, of course, who he could have been mistaken for. I don't know. I, I always wonder, because I've always wondered why things that are such a huge impact on me, others don't quite get and enjoy the same way. Maybe we're oddballs um, yeah. or misfits because it really is a, a kind of a, a misfit kind of story in a lot of ways. Um, I do wonder what, you know, in, in terms of if someone brought back today as a streaming series, if it would work, you know, is it too hard? They've tried to bring back Parker numerous times over the years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it may be, maybe too hard, you know, like one of the other guy in the previous generation and the writer is just as even tougher as Paul Kane, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that to me is almost takes the style almost too far. <laughs> it's almost too, too hard. And maybe off-putting to some readers think, oh, this is just too brittle, where I love it. Yeah. You know, I love yeah. Like a like hot sauce, you know, the hotter, the better, the more hot boiled, the better. Me too. Me too. Yeah.
0: I have a theory. Okay. And my theory is that his books were never made into any sort of movie oh. or series.
1: Oh. So true. And
0: I think a lot of our culture relies on movies and TV series to tell us tell us what's good and what we should read. Absolutely. And uh, that's one reason why I chose to do him for this podcast, because I want people to know that this is somebody you should read because he's a significant writer. Yeah. He's got a point to make about the world. And you're right. It is pretty hard and not everybody likes that kind of stuff, but if you do boy, this, this, these, he's one of the masters. Yes. I believe. And, uh, I believe too it's just a shame you know you can get his books in ebook much easier than you can in paperback but the reprints that uh, Fawcett did later in the 70s are, mm. are pretty plentiful so you can find them fairly inexpensively and name of the game and death and one endless hour you definitely should read
1: absolutely oh high's guarantee if, if they did a library of america collection of like crime novels of the 60s just has to be in there, right? Has to be in there. Has to be in there. <laughs> Just in terms of style and everything else, yeah.
0: How many Marlow novels do you have in your collection, Duane?
1: All of them. I, I Over the years, I found all of them They're Right now, though, uh, a good part of them are back in stores in Philadelphia. Ah. Moving out to LA, I kind of left some things behind. I couldn't bring it all, and I haven't seen them in a while. But I actually recently, during pandemic days, uh, you know, on eBay, found a complete run of the Black Lizards, uh, the first. So I wow, I, down. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm stuck here in my house. I'm going to bring these things. Um, so, I have the, the four, you know, right hand, on hand, the four black lizards of Marlowe. And they're all yeah. great. You know, no, I mean, this is the best one, but Vengeance Man, uh, Strong Arm, they're just as, you know, fun and, and lurid as as name of the game, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. The, um, uh, the covers of the early gold medal uh uh titles that he wrote are really beautifully done yeah that yeah. phone booth uh we were talking about earlier is beautiful it perfectly captures that scene and uh, many of the other gold medal covers are very good um uh the operation series though aren't so good they, no. <laughs> no. they seem to fit into that um uh, espionage the Matt yeah the Matthelm helm yeah the, very the much lawyer
1: the punisher the whatever you know they yeah 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 they're not oh that that, that bums me out right that that original gold medal cover is like the quintessential gold medal cover isn't it like the voice on the the phone booth it's everything is so perfect and yeah
0: as as you can see the name of the game of death that that cover there yeah it's that man in action kind of thing right on a boat which is like what the fuck (laughs) it's just crazy and um he's the the fellow the drake the man with nobody's face looks like richard Conte, you know that that <laughs> yeah, uh, that actor which i'm sure they modeled after and, and he I'm has sure nothing it. nothing to do with that face at all you know
1: no no yeah. well, actually I, I, i'm fascinated by the, the, the idea that this novel was supposed to be a one-off i mean he had to be sort of nudged into making it a series same with richard stark you know delon Westlake's, um, parker books the first right, one the, right. and, you know caught uh, but no pressure to kind of let's get this thing going and make this a series uh which i admire but also the, and also the matt helm books i'm in the first matt helm book incredible the death of the citizen is outstanding and then the first i would say even like the first 10 aren't aren't great aren't bad you know but there after a while it descends the parody and kind yeah, of it's a know, formula yeah yeah and the same here too with the, the old drake books I know why he did it, and it's cool. Um, everyone needs their paycheck. I get it, <laughs> but but um, yeah, sometimes I I do prefer series that end with one book, <laughs> you know, the kind of yeah. you see potential, but it's like it's all there. You know, yeah, anything, you know anything. The else.
0: rewrite or uh, the sequel, one endless hour, uh, was written in collaboration with Al Nussbaum. Yes, it was his uh, sort of bank robber friend. Yeah, who, who read name of the game is death wrote wrote to Marlowe and they began a friendship. Right. And eventually uh, Marlowe helped him get his parole, came out and helped him become a writer. And he became a fairly reasonably good writer and moved to LA.
1: Yeah. And
0: then Marlowe ended up living with him for some period of time. But the collaboration between them, uh, uh, Charles Kelly was never quite able to work out exactly who did what. There were some things I think, he mentioned that uh, Nussbaum came up with the Earl Drake name,
1: uh, er- I saw that. Yeah.
0: Earl Meek from Roy Earl in the, uh, uh W.R. Burnett.
1: Right. Um, I Sierra.
0: Hi Sierra. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I think he probably helped him shape some of the, some of the scenes, but it's still pretty fully Marlowe. I mean, oh, yeah. if you read them in succession, you'll, you'll, you'd be i'd be pretty sensitive to anything that was seemed to be off and i didn't feel that way at all i thought it was great
1: yeah Now that um, to me is that there, there's a movie like the idea that you know dan marlowe had a stroke lost his memory and his roommates with a bank robber fan who <laughs> wants to be a writer that's a great movie right that's a that's a buddy comedy from hell I, just, I do love that idea and and Al Nussbaum is funny, I'm fascinated by his career as well, you know, yeah. a very smart bank robber taunting J. Edgar Hoover, you know, um, he, he's in Reader's Digest, he's all these things, he's a celebrity, he's almost the Zodiac before the Zodiac, you know, leaving notes for, yeah. taunting law, and oddly enough, I wrote, I wrote a, you know, bank robbery book, a nonfiction, and he was a chapter in it, uh, years later, I happened to meet uh, Al Nussbaum's daughter, Alison Nussbaum, huh. you know, who um has many very friendly cool funny woman uh right a lot of funny stories about her dad who she didn't see much but clearly admires you know yeah for what he did with his life um i mean there's something there i I kind of it's been nagging at me for years now there's a story there to be told the latter years of these two which fascinate me yeah but we'll see
0: (laughs) you know uh there were two other things i wanted to briefly touch on with marlo and that is his um uh writing about sex Oh, yeah. Uh, If you've read the Marlowe books, you know there's sex in every one of the novels. Well, that's not entirely true. The very last novel, which was here, I'll show it to you, which was called Phoenix Force. Okay. The Guerrilla Games. That's right. Which I read and enjoyed very much. It's a Don Pendleton and Gar Wilson. Gar Wilson is the uh, pseudonym for How Dan Marlowe. He he won a contest. They brought in a bunch of authors and paid him three hundred bucks to write a sort of treatment uh, <laughs> okay. for the Phoenix Force. And they really liked Marlowe, and he did the second entry in it. And wow. it 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 doesn't have the. Um, that brilliance that, that that he had in his other, but it's very competent. It's much less cluttered and facile uh, than mm-hmm. many of the other Don Pendleton books are. It's quite enjoyable, but it's clearly a very different kind of Marlowe yeah. writing. And Nussbaum helped him get this job, wow. by the way, in in Phoenix with it. And that's pretty cool. But yeah. that's the only book that doesn't have sex in it. And I I wanted to talk about sex because the I'd, sex in novels is a in crime novels in particular it's part of the world you know yeah. so it's going to be a part of it the way Marlowe handled it was the for most of the most of it, he would get to the point of which there would be consummation and then he'd cut to something else. That was a sort of traditional movie way of doing it. But then in some of the other novels, he would go through the consummation, but he wouldn't describe it in graphic detail.
1: Right. He would
0: use a metaphor to, to describe the thing and then come after it. But also there was some very, um, strong violence sex in it. The rape in, um, name of the game is death. There's yeah. a couple others in which the women are abused physically, but he always had sex in his novels. How do you cope with an author in terms of looking at how to put sex in your books?
1: Oh, I, I, I really try to avoid it. <laughs> <Unless it's, laughs> I, you know, cause I realize how, bad it can turn out if you don't do it right it feels like just like in real life uh but no i I, it's 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 a thing where if it's you know important to the story important to the characters to show their sex lives but by all means go for it but it's not really something i honestly dwell on um probably to my detriment i think people do like you know james king was great at spice and in a tasteful way in a very artful way in a very again his characters are driven by sex often and that's you know huge. and I think, you know, I suspect Dan Marlowe had his, his kinks and his pleasures, and he kind of, they worked their way in, you know, and, and probably I do too, unconsciously, if I'm sure things creep in there. Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. I'm going to read later. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's hard to pull off. I mean, I, I think it's about being rooted in like, when it reads like, I don't know, stereo instructions, it's bad. But when it reads like, you know, two, two people really trying to connect it at a at a carnal level, if it's done well. It's great. You know, it's pretty amazing. And you kind of get in their heads. Well, I think he
0: handled it pretty well, except yeah. for the violent part of it. But then again, that was part of the crime novel world. And also in the 60, sure. 50s and 60s, there was a very different sensibility about what kind of sex should be in a novel. That's Using cool. rape as a form of punishment or revenge yeah. was just not something you do nowadays, no. which I'm glad of. But it was a part of that world when he did it. So but different. I found Charles Kelly in his, uh, uh, otherwise excellent biography talks about this fetish mm-hmm. that he thinks Marlowe has his buttocks fetish okay. of spanking buttocks. But I read <laughs> six of Marlowe's novels, including reread name of the game of death, looking for this fetish moment. And it never happened.
1: Yeah. yeah I never saw it. I never jumped out at me honestly either. Um, I, I like I like is it, is it um what's, what's her name the um, I'm blanking on her name the character um, in One Endless Hour. His oh yes. And the uh, geez, why am I blanking on this all of a sudden? Um, anyway, she I liked her. She seemed like she could hold her own with Earl Drake slash Chet Arnold. Um, yes. Why am I blanking on her name? That's embarrassing. Yeah, I can't remember her name. <laughs> yeah, um,
0: Sharon. Something. Anyway, yeah. yeah, she's great. She's a great character.
1: Yep uh but yeah it, it, it's it's funny i think people read into what they you know read into in these books and what jumps out at them may not be what the author intended i'm always stunned with people tell me about things in my own books that i never even thought about let alone yeah. meant to do <laughs> it's like, oh okay well that means that part. you're
0: also you're using your unconscious to write as well
1: i hope so yeah that'd be, that'd, yeah. That'd be a good thing yeah. um,
0: <laughs> now the other thing i wanted to quickly mention um is the marlos
1: you okay Right here. Sorry, it's good tissue. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> good. good.
0: The other thing I wanted to mention was Marlowe's love of animals. Um, clearly, uh, he he just loved them, and he gave that love of animals to Drake. Yeah. Which also makes him such a interesting character, a sociopathic character, because he has greater affection for animals, in yeah. a sense, and it makes sense because if animals are innocent. Right. In a sense that they don't have a moral, make moral choices. They're not going to screw you over. They're not going to plot to screw you over. Yeah. Then they would be more attractive to him as, than people.
1: Yeah. You know, Absolutely.
0: and his love, he, he gets a, a um, shelter dog in, in name of the game is death. Right. Takes care of it. And uh, eventually it be- plays a very major part in the ending of the book. Yeah. which I won't spoil for you, but right. it it's right. the thing that changes everything. The choice, it forces Marlowe into a, or excuse me, forces Drake into a choice that changes everything for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah. It's his one weakness. If you call it that, his one Achilles heel, right? Yeah. So that is interesting. Yeah. I think you nailed it as far as, you know, if you're in a sociopathic mindset, animals won't screw you over. They don't make, you know, they have the most perfect innocent lives, you know, but also, Animals can be, you know, it's law of the jungle, right? You can, you're fighting over a scrap of food. maybe the strongest dog win, and I think he, he would admire some, you know, an idea like that. Yeah. So yeah, when you punish those kind of creatures, that are, you know, yeah, that's that's going to bring out the worst in him for sure.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about a little bit about your writing, Dwayne. Okay. Um, tell us what it's like to write a novel. I, a Wheelman was my introduction to you, which I thought was tremendous, and I can see the influence on it. Um, now, I know sure. you've you've gone quite a bit away from that. You're writing different kinds of things now, a lot of graphic novels and, and things right. like that, but what was it like to write those early crime novels, and how did you research on them? What, what do you think uh, the writing process is like?
1: You know, it's funny. People ask, you know, how do you write novels? To me, it's you'll, you learn how to write each book at a time. Like I never you write one; you don't know how to write them all. everyone's a different campaign, a different war. Uh, um, I remember writing Wheelman was a reaction to the very first book I wrote, which is like all first novels. It was trying to be everything at once, like anything I loved. It was, in <laughs> that. It was horror. It was detective story. It was a science fiction thing. Like it was a big mess of just everything, uh, which I gravitate i love that stuff but um the i it almost sold but then the common refrain was we don't know where to sell this thing is it a mystery is it a science so i was like all right my next book i'll make it easy i'll make it one thing it'll be a bank robbery heist you know story and i actually started writing it not because i thought it would sell i just wanted to prove myself that i can actually write uh strict you know genre and at the time i had just been researching and writing the history of american bank robberies, so i had bank robberies on the brain Perfect. And I had the, you know, for the introduction, I said, oh, you know what, I'll case my own bank and see if I were to rob this bank, what would it, what would it be like? So I went to my neighborhood bank, and I looked at it, and I up th- I, I think, a pretty plausible way of getting away with it, actually, if if you were to do it, and it's the streets you drive, and it took root in my brain to the point where I just started writing it for fun, and that became, the, you know, the, the, the novel. I mean, um, influenced by, for sure, Dan Marlowe, by Richard Stark, the Parker books. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like, you know, a famous line about how we all crawled off from under Hammett's mask. I feel like a lot of crime writers at some point put on Richard Stark's overcoat and like love being the, you know, that, that kind of cold, hard boiled, anti-social, anti-hero. And that's what I was trying to do and give those same kind of limitations that Marlowe gives, you know, Drake in the books. I try to give with my, it was, it's a mute Irish getaway driver in my novel. So he can't actually speak, he just can't speak. So Mm. that already traps him and it makes him suspect, you know, among his, his criminal companions. And of course he screwed over so it was it was a very familiar plot but i think if i did anything different with it it was trying to do that you know trying to do a, a i guess a modern day earl drake story in a weird yeah. way you know and kind of what that person would go through and the same thing he screwed over he looks for revenge and he the journey is the is the fun of it um when i finished that book i kind of i, I guess i wasn't tempted to do a sequel but i kind of like the idea of a world being built yeah, in it. So, yeah, yeah. And the, the Drake books were a very big influence because there was a minor character in The Wheelman who carries over to the next novel almost as a secret agent type person who don't quite know about. And it was like, that was definitely a nod to like, okay, the Drake series and just worlds within worlds. I love when Elmore Leonard, you know, you feel like there's a shared world happening there. Uh, Tarantino's, you know, for sure, there's a shared world happening. So I, I love playing in that world. So, but it didn't help me one bit writing the next novel because <laughs> I really had to see <laughs> all over again what what to do. I think the trick is you have to have a story that intrigues you and intrigues you for at least six months. Otherwise, you're stuck, (laughs) at least to hang in there every day, go back to it and think, okay, these characters are still fun. It's still interesting. I'm not sure what happens next. You know, and yeah, um, with the wheel man, that was totally improvised. In fact, the ending caught me by surprise. Oh, Uh, wow. Yeah. It was really, honestly, it was like, oh, that's how it ends. Okay. That was a weird thing to me. Yeah. And again, because I thought it wouldn't sell. I, I didn't mind the downbeat ending. Sorry, spoiler. I don't mind. It was a bit of a downbeat ending, but I didn't care because I thought, well, it won't sell. So who cares? I just that was fun for me to do. Yeah. yeah. My shock, it sold pretty fast. So yeah. Weird. I
0: thought it was a wonderful novel. And I'm really yeah, looking forward to reading some of the others as well. Yeah, I, I wanted to do a quick quote on the writing process from Marlowe and see what you think of it. Sure. Uh, Marlowe wrote that it's more a process of learning what to leave out than what to include you leave out all the purple adjectives and the adverbs you leave out all the extraneous information that you so carefully gathered as background because it stops the flow of the story you have to lean it down
1: do you agree with that advice dwayne a hundred percent it's a great lesson and the thing is you have to keep relearning that lesson i think because every writer i think you know even after a few books you kind of you for me at least i should speak for myself I ease back into that being a little more verbose. You're trying different things. You're trying to experiment. You kind of forget that. No, that gets in the way. You know, you don't want to show your homework that much. You really want to, I, I first, if you want a story to move, I think, you know, short chapters, short sentences, it sounds basic, but it's a rhythm. It's musical after a while, you know, and I think these are very musical you know, chapters. Um, just again, the voice is everything to me. So whenever I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of lost in the woods in a book or you know, losing the voice a bit, I just cut. I try to, you know, go back and, it's always something I've added that is derailing me. Um, and I think Stephen King said like your, your second draft is your first draft minus 10%, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you want to cut down. So I, yeah, I think you want to just eliminate all the things that are getting in the way. Like a car has no extra parts. So you want to just, you know, get it down to the bone and have that thing move. Right, right. That I do admire writers who like, sometimes the plot is not important and it doesn't move and it's very, you're having fun with language. That's cool. That has it has its place. Personally, I kind of like the one things that move fast and, yeah. you know, sneak things by you and you only yeah. need to register later. Like, wow, what did they do well, there? Well,
0: they okay. each have their charm, you know. Yeah. And, and it also depends upon your mood as a reader, you know, because the reader is as important as the book they're reading. I mean, there are books that I've tried to read, gotten three quarters of the way through and just went, what the hell? <laughs> like This doesn't make any sense. And yet I come back to it several years later and I go, oh, my God, this is a masterpiece, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it all has to do with my willingness to go where the writer is taking me. Yeah and i think the faster leaner books tend to, to reduce that process of the reader disengaging right. than than other more other books that have more ambiguity to them and that yeah. it might be harder to read
1: yeah uh, i agree
0: what are some of your recent projects that you've been working on and where can readers find out more about your work Dwayne?
1: sure i mean the most recent thing is i, I you mentioned the guilty I, I, an audible original uh, talking about stripping things down that was a great experience because you know it's basically a modern version of a radio play so all you have to play with is just dialogue and sound effects and for that i actually made music kind of a character in a way i kind of snuck in some things there but i mean i was used to writing comic books for years at least you have visuals there this was just pure dialogue at first i was wondering how am i going to pull this off tell a story with just people talking and. It was great. It was so liberating actually in a weird way. Um, So much fun. So I did that. Um, I'm also still doing comics. I my most recent thing is a series for um, John Carpenter. He has a thing called science fiction. Yeah. He's uh, his um, wife Sandy has a storm King comics entire line and I've done things over the years for them. And the most recent one is called civilians that I wrote. It's a three part series, the first issues out in February. So it's every three months and the trade is out this summer. So that's great fun playing like in a John Carpenter sandbox. That was a lot of fun.
0: Well, my thanks to Dwayne Swierzynski for sharing his time with us today. I hope you return for another session at some point in the future, Dwayne. Maybe uh, Black Lizard. We can look oh, at the Black Lizard series.
1: I love that. That sounds great. Thanks so much, Ricky, for having me on. Sure.
0: Now, uh, what paperback writer do you think we should cover in future episodes Ooh. that deserves to be uh, looked at?
1: Well, I mean, David Goodis is my longtime favorite, the Philadelphia factor, but I just think he's genius. And he was, you know, um, but he's been well well covered. Uh, as far as more obscure, you know, one hold on, let me make the name right here. Uh where is it? Oh, okay. Robert Edmund Alter. Uh he has a weird yes. look here that fascinates me. You know, Swamp Sister. Swamp and, Sister. Um, and he was actually an LA guy. He lived in uh, Altadena um for most oh. of his career. He was, I think, worked at um either for the postal service or the library in Pasadena. I did a little research on him a few months ago. And yeah, he's a guy that I think is interesting. Um, There's a lot to his life that, you know, hasn't been talked about, but I I would, you know, definitely love to hear more about him. Um, Excellent choice. Thank you. A whole bunch. Yeah.
0: Great. All right. That's it. Thanks a lot, Dwayne. See you again.
1: Take care. Bye. (laughs)